they're really screening for specific qualities that are much more related to results and what you can actually do than they are to credentials. Yeah. And I think that this represents a huge shift in the way that we hire right. at, at the world's leading tech companies. Hey, welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff, I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Matt, and I'm a growth engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. So today, we're going to talk about UX myths. A bunch of ideas surrounding the UX profession that need to die. Uh, <laughs> so, so aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, first, uh, the first thing that I want to talk about is, is actually... Um, not as much of a myth as it is a perception, I think, around like the the best ways to get into the UX industry. And as a specific part of this, a lot of the time, what we, we like to talk about education. What role does education play in UX? And for that matter, what role does education play in tech uh, from, from a broader perspective? So I want to talk about this actually uh, through the course of an article that was written on uh, quartz.com and a lot of it was originally sourced uh, I believe from the Wall Street Journal and it's an interview with Laszlo Bach he's the head of people operations at Google and the title of this article is why Google doesn't care about hiring top college graduates so right out yeah. of the gates, we kind of know what they the tone take, is going to be. <laughs> they take an incredibly opinionated stance in that. Time, yes. But obviously, they want people to read it, too. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm sure as you dig in, it's I, they're probably not that. Like, like what school did you go to, Harvard? Like, nah, we don't do that. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I would say that's a safe bet. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they actually, they maintain that intensity throughout the entire article. Um, and it's not just the writers that are doing that. It's actually Laszlo takes some some really interesting stances on uh, the way that they think about candidates and the way that they approach their hiring process. So he brings out three key points uh, in this article regarding how Google approaches uh, education when they're hiring. The first thing that he says is that uh, graduates of top schools can lack intellectual humility. So I think this is That's, really I'm aggressive. A, that sounds offensive. It's, it's almost offensive, yeah. Um, it, I, I, it's, but what I will say is that if you actually read what he has to say about it, you yeah. can kind of start to understand. Yeah, um, and if you know what intellectual humility means, which is not stupid. Right, yeah. it's, yes, it's quite the opposite, actually. Uh, in, in a lot of ways. I'll just go ahead and, and read what he specifically says about this. So this is a quote from Laszlo. He says, in reference to graduates of top uh, schools, he says, they instead commit the fundamental attribution error, which is if something good happens, it's because I'm a genius. If something bad happens, it's because someone's an idiot or I didn't get the resources or the market moved. 
what we've seen is that the people who are the most successful here, who we want to hire, will have a fierce position. They'll argue like hell. They'll be zealots about their point of view. But then you say, hey, here's a new fact. And they'll go, oh, well, that changes things. You're right. And essentially what he's trying to say here is that at Google, it's very important for the people that they hire to be able to uh, be humble in their position, despite the fact that they may really believe in what they're saying. Uh, if they're presented with evidence to the contrary, they have to be able to admit, hey, you know what, I might have lost this argument and this other person may be right and we should go with that because that's the right decision. Yeah, but it sounds like they don't want spineless people either. Like they want right. somebody who is... Who takes a stance, right. but is willing to take evidence for what it is. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and his whole argument in regards to like graduates of top schools is that he says specifically, uh, successful, bright people rarely experience failure. And so they don't learn how to learn from that failure. So kind of what he's saying here is that when, when you, if you can get into an Ivy League university, you're like, you're a winner. You know, you've been yeah. winning your whole life. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's very important to them that, that their candidates experience failure. I will say here at HubSpot, we have people that have all made amazing careers for themselves. Some of them don't have an education at all, uh, a formal education that is. And some of them are graduates from Harvard and MIT and Columbia, um, Stanford, yeah, incredible universities. We have a lot of... MITs. Yes, yeah, a lot of MITs. really close we live right down the street. I mean, so. yeah, if you just look at like yeah, our C-suite, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. like all MIT, right? Um, so I, my take on this is uh, I, I think that I, I work with a lot of people that come from different backgrounds that all have intellectual humility. So it's not to say that just because you graduate from a top school that you might lack intellectual humility. Yeah. I think that's a bit of a generalization, but it does seem that Google is specifically screening for that in, in terms of like, if you're from a top school, they'll flag that so that they make sure that they can verify intellectual humility. Yeah. The second point that he makes, they're probably, by the way, they're probably testing that across the board. I can't imagine yes. that they're not going to do that if you don't. If you like don't have a formal yeah. education, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but that's so likely that you're going to, like, that. that maybe it's just way more likely if you um, go to a top tier school. Yeah. Yeah, it must be some sort of trend. It there. seems a little like survival of the fittest to me, you know? Yeah. It's like Darwinism mm -hmm. applied to hiring in mm -hmm. a sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> that's, I mean, but isn't that like hiring in general, right? Like building a company, like you need like the best of the best all the time. It is, I'm just imagining like Google only wants to hire people given this article who like made it uh, from like a struggling family with like eight sisters that they had to feed while they're growing up and going through high school and had to like teach themselves how to code at the same time. And now they're at Google and they're, Google's like, wow, look at all the things you did. Look at the struggles you had to overcome. Yes. Like we like you. Yes, and that's actually, you just made an excellent point. Look at the struggles that you've had to overcome. That, that brings us to the second point that Laszlo makes in this article where he says, people that make it without college are often the most exceptional. And uh, to quote him directly, he says, when you look at people who don't go to school and make their way in the world, those are exceptional human beings. And we should do everything we can to find those people. So Google is taking the stance here that if you can be super successful against the odds of not having a formal education, then you must be genuinely exceptional. 
Um, and, and so I think that's that's a really interesting position to take. It's a very positive way to look at this stuff. Uh, the final point that he makes is learning ability is more important than IQ. And he says, to quote him directly again, for every job though, the number one thing we look for is general cognitive ability. And it's not IQ, it's learning ability. It's the ability to process on the fly. So they're really screening for specific qualities that are much more related from my point of view to results and what you can actually do than they are to credentials. Yeah. And I think that this represents a huge shift in the way that we hire right. at, at the world's leading tech companies, this uh, at least me, in the United States. I, I do wonder mm -hmm. though, um, it's been proven that human beings just in general mm -hmm. tend to like and identify with people that are very similar to themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's always this kind of hiring bias going yeah. into it. So like as much as, you know, this article, you know, they're waving this flag of, you know, justice and hiring futurism, it's, uh, mm -hmm. I wonder how much they're able to also overcome some of these real problems with being at a company that's massive. I know they mm -hmm. touched on it in their book a little bit, Yeah. Um, but to be fair, people from Google wrote the book about Google. Like they're not going to yeah. say like, and we are actually, you know, creating an incredibly toxic culture under the scenes without realizing it. Like they're going oh, to try to promote that. Um, I am, I think um, you're absolutely right. I think that this at the fundamental level is the right way to go about it. Mm -hmm. um, I just I just hope that they're also trying to, you know, you've got this thing like the the gender divide in technology. Mm -hmm. Like, how are they um, trying to to approach that in the right way moving forward? Especially the, the diversity problem too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's just a lot of things that this is great, but this is kind of like, you know. McDonald's figured out what kind of employees are best for them, you know, mm -hmm. but they still have these these issues just because of the individuals doing the hiring themselves. Yeah, so totally. That's, that's kind of a, that's more of a bigger thing. I, you know, it's this well, is something this article is not going to answer. I think that Google does do a really good job in representing themselves as who they want to be, mm -hmm. even if sometimes they aren't exactly there yet. Yeah. And that's kind of been the way that they approach this stuff is they say, we're going to talk about who we want to be as if we are already there because that's that's the most motivating way to get there. Right. So of course, if you've ever dealt with a recruiter from Google, which I'm sure that like all of us have in some capacity, uh, they, they talk about education. So <laughs> Google does still, care about education, yeah. that's something that they, they talk about a lot. Uh, but what I think that they're pushing for here is what I see as being one of the greatest advantages that um, tech companies in, in the United States and even more specifically in Silicon Valley with sort of this West Coast style approach to business are going to have over the rest of the world. Yeah. Uh, and that is that we hire based on what you can actually do Right. more than your credentials. We'll use your credentials as indicators for the type of person that you are. So if you have a good education, you're probably really smart, you're probably really motivated, but we're not going to hire you purely based off of the merit of your education right. from an Ivy League university. And for that matter, uh, we also wouldn't uh, not hire somebody just because they don't have an education from right. a top, your university, which if you travel, you know, to like, I, 
the, some of the traveling that I've been doing lately to uh, Brazil and around Brazil and everything like that, I've gotten to meet with a lot of designers in South America, very talented people. They're doing some incredible stuff, right? Um, but credentials and education and peer-reviewed papers, this is design, yeah. they play a major role in it. Um, and so I think that what this does is it actually it cuts out a lot of the the talent pool right. and these tech companies are recognizing like wait a second there's a lot of different ways into design into ux mm -hmm. and uh we we need to make sure that we're not ignoring the people that just that are just as talented but made their path through a little bit different right. of a, a, a way right part of that is they're trying to build a culture that's centered around innovation and experimentation, yeah. which is incredibly important, specifically if you want to be a UX designer, yep. where you need to be okay with failure. You need to be okay with the fact that you don't know something. And you need to be okay with the fact that you maybe need to explore something that's unexplored in, in, in the field of UX mm -hmm. and be innovative. Um, so particularly with Google, this is what I'm seeing. Yeah. And they have a very innovative culture. Um, it was interesting. I was able to see a talk at Inbound this past year um, where one of the executives at Google talked about this and they said that everyone at Google has what they call 10% projects, mm -hmm. which is that they encourage you to spend 10% of your time at work working on something that Google did not ask you to do, mm -hmm. which is just exploring something that you want to work on. Some examples have been things like Street View for mm -hmm. Google. That was just a guy who had a camera and he's like, hey, we can just take pictures of the street and we can put it on Google Maps and Google yeah. Earth. And as we can see now, Google liked that 10% project invested heavily in it and it's now something we all love yeah but the flip side of that is you need they need to encourage people to continue with their 10 percent projects even if they fail and don't get that investment um and the way that they do that is kind of interesting they have what they call the penguin award or the courageous mm -hmm. penguin award uh, and the idea behind it is um, when penguins migrate they're all at the edge of this cliff ready to jump into the water and they're all just standing around waiting for that first penguin to dive in and that first penguin dives in and all the other penguins wait to see if he comes back up to stick his head up out of the water because they all don't know if there's predators under the water or not. Mm -hmm. So they give out the Courageous Penguin Award to um, employees whose 10% projects didn't make it, failed, but were ambitious and exciting. And mm -hmm. that way they're, they're encouraging you to just try and it's okay to fail. Mm -hmm. The name of that award, uh, your explanation, is way better than what I first thought it was. Which is basically, I just had like uh, screenshots of happy feet like fly <laughs> through my head. I was just like, oh, that penguin was courageous. <laughs> He's also a great dancer. Um, oh, so one thing too, um, just going back to the, the top tier schools mm -hmm. part of this conversation. It's, it seems like the shift, the big shift is that these tech companies are now, they're not recognizing... Um, the education as a supplement or a replacement for actual experience. Yes. Whereas in the past, that has been a thing that education served to do it. You could look at somebody and go, you went to uh, Harvard or you went to MIT and this guy didn't. Mm -hmm. And even if this guy has like three or four years of experience, this person maybe has, you know, six months of experience, but went to this school, you kind of view them on the same level because you're like, well, this guy's really smart. Like he's done all mm -hmm. this stuff and he's proven himself somewhere down the line. We've learned now, um, I think this is still pretty new, but it's becoming mm -hmm. a generally accepted fact that when you're leaving school and diving right into business, there is 
kind of you're you're bursting through the wall of the bubble and you you're you don't really have any of those skills yet like you need to be in the the thick of it in order to actually understand what's going on and now it sounds like companies like Google understand that they yes. they're like we need you to be like with reality yes. you know having some sort of experience having some sort of projects that you've done to be a part of you know the the rest of I guess real life society because the college is not you know nowadays. right. There's actually a very relevant quote that Laszlo has in the article where he says, "Many schools don't deliver on what they promise, but generate a ton of debt in return for not learning what's most useful. It's an extended adolescence." Right. So again, very you know opinionated approach to this that may not necessarily be universally true, but I think that companies are waking up to this, that especially in, in uh, career paths like growth and UX, there is simply no substitute for experience. Right. UX is not something that can be taught in a classroom. Uh, if you look at like the best uh, degree programs, that would you know generate a career in UX there a lot of them are very abstract you'll, you'll see a lot of psychology majors a lot of marketing majors people that are just learning how to interact with other people and how the brain works and then if you look at like a human computer interaction degree which is a little bit more specific to UX mm -hmm. uh, you'll find that actually a lot of the pro the best programs in HCI uh, they're very focused on, on getting their students real world experience it's yeah. it's very much out of the classroom so um when whenever somebody asks me like how do i get into ux or how do i hire a ux designer um the first thing that i tell them is to listen to our episode with mike geis yeah <laughs> <laughs> because he is a he's a hiring and uh, career building expert. Uh, that was a couple episodes ago. We had a lot of good information there. However, if you are an, uh, a business owner that's looking to hire, I think that you should start with an exercise that I'm going to quickly go through uh, that will help you to screen for designers. Uh, and then you should also look at credentials still, like um, experience, portfolio work, education, if they have one. Right. How many clubs um, were they in in college? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did they play soccer in yeah. college? <laughs> That's a lot um, of soccer. <laughs> so, so taking all of that into consideration, if you're looking to get hired, um, I would say uh, that probably still getting an education isn't a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, I think that's that's still the right thing to do. Um, however, as you're getting that education, you should understand that that's not going to make you into uh, a pro that that education does does not guarantee you a job and it doesn't make you into a professional. So you need to be doing things outside of your education to gain experience um, and and to show that that you actually care about this and that you're passionate about this. No UX designer gets hired without a portfolio. Right. Uh, and and if you've ever seen like a, a real UX portfolio, you'll notice that it's not like a visual design portfolio where it's just you know shots of like the actual final designs, but rather it's case studies. Where where you go through the process and it's like thousands of words long. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, they're a real pain to create. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but so for interviewing, like how, you know, how do you interview for a UX designer? 
um, outside of just education. There's a really uh, interesting article that was published by Google Ventures that says how to interview a designer with the perfect design exercise. And they basically set up a design exercise that um, is a, a difficult design problem to solve. It takes 15 to 40 minutes, depending on the scope of the problem that you create. And the main point of this is that it's impossible to fake and it stimulates working together between the interviewee and the interviewer uh, because it's a real design problem that you right. have to solve. It's just like simulating a real work environment, yep. basically. Yep, exactly. So they, they create this problem where they, they ask for you to complete an impossible task, fundamentally, um, even though you don't realize it at the time. They create a level playing field um, they and they focus on a very small set of skills. So if it's product design, they're going to be focusing on skills that are specific to product design when they set up this problem. Mm -hmm. A problem may look something like this. Uh, the interviewer would say, let's do a design exercise. Imagine we're designing a kiosk at a transit stop. Its purpose is to let regular commuters refill their transit cards. We have an engineer coming in 20 minutes and he needs a spec. In that time, we need to complete exactly uh, we need to explain exactly how this kiosk should work. Some of the objectives that they're trying to pull out of this are, does the designer uncover the actual constraints in the design? Do they define the tasks that the user has to complete as they go through this process? Are they a visual thinker? Are they actually thinking in terms of what the design will be like? Are they full of ideas, like different ways to do something like this? And can they critique their own work? Um, so a really great way to actually verify outside of somebody's portfolio or outside of their education that they can actually do what it is that they claim to do. Um, I won't give away specifically what the interviewers are screening for, um, but I can tell you that a lot of tech companies uh, do uh, run exercises very similar to this. Um, in terms of like the you know the core components that go into it, we do an exercise uh, that is not this exact exercise, but it, it's aimed at the same thing uh, when we interview design uh, candidates here at HubSpot. Um, so so this is a common thing, and and they found that this is Google has found this is better than uh, screening based off of GPAs and brand name schools and brain teasers. They have like some really famous brain teasers that they've done, like yeah. the whole thing. Have you heard about the thing with the manhole cover? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, so, why is a manhole why is a manhole cover not square? Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, I'm not going to answer that. Yeah, I'm not answering I'm not. that either. But they used to <laughs> actually screen people based off of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, they don't. Uh, they they lean away from that now. They're, yes. They don't like to do that anymore because yeah. they've proven they pro they have proven that it's uh, com not effective at all. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't right. actually prove anything about the person. They've done they've done long term studies. Yeah. Uh, where where they put people through different types of interview processes and saw how it affected their performance yeah. and like growth in the company. And they found that there was actually no correlation between their brain teasers and a better candidate. Yeah. So this is interesting. Um, That's a myth. <laughs> speaking of speaking of UX myths, we've just uncovered the first myth. Uh -huh. Actually, it's no, it's not a UX myth. That's just a myth. <laughs> well, well, part of this is the myth that hey, this works for Google. It'll work for my company. I should just read this article and do what they're doing. Yeah, so yeah. that's a good point. Yeah, that's a great point. Yep. Yeah. So and that really does apply um, like cross the board. So for example, you've got um, you go with that their hiring process. I, I can think of. Um, and I've taken interviews where people have thrown brain teachers at me, things like that. And I, I left with two feelings. One, that I was stupid. And two, 
uh, that I don't know if this is a company I would want to work for. You know, like <laughs> I just felt a brain teaser at you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it just seemed I don't know. Like that's just a personal thing. Two, um, where this applies in you know your your product is it's an easy assumption to make that if another company is doing something and solving a problem that you want to solve, you know, for example, uh, we always go back to like the landing page example. If your landing page is not converting your traffic into customers or into, you know, they're not giving an email address or going through some sort of form, you may reach out to a whole bunch of other websites and be like, what are they doing? Like, oh, the vast majority of them have a huge banner. Like, we're going to go with that banner, you know? And you you assumed that they are doing something that's working. You don't know that, you know? And two, um, you also assumed that their audience is the same as your audience, which is also probably not true. Mm-hmm. You know, all of this is based on skipping the step of verifying data. Um, so in a way, it's not just a myth, it's terrible UX practice to do yeah. that. It goes back to a concept that Austin introduced in our episode on design trends, which he called authentic growth. Right. Or not authentic growth, but authentic trends. Mm-hmm. Authentic um, trends, yeah. yes. Um, and, and what he means by that is that you need to arrive to this conclusion authentically by actually collecting the data and verifying that this trend or this design element that you're going to use is effective. Right. Rather than just blindly slapping on the same skin that Spotify used. Right. You need to uh, you need to verify that that skin is effective for your audience. Yeah. yeah. A little little bit of of an interesting story to kind of help paint this picture in people's heads. Basically, what we're talking about here is the importance of independent verification. And this goes beyond just like, uh, oh, Apple is doing it, so it, you know we should do something like that too. When I'm working at a B2B company, business to business, and Apple is a B2C company, business to consumer, we're in completely different categories. There's absolutely nothing that we share in common. Right. So it should be very obvious that we wouldn't naturally copy what they do. Although some, some people do do that, um, right. despite the fact that it's so obviously uh, yeah, reckless. and that's that's uh, personal preference, um, and we're going to circle back to that in a second. Yeah. So keep going. Yeah, uh, but but this actually goes even deeper than that. Where you can, I have run experiments where you can take something from your direct competitor, and put it on your site. So you pick your biggest competitor, their your direct competitor, and say that they're doing this one thing on their site. Copy it onto your site, you know, apply your style to it or whatever, and see how it does. And it miserably fails. And the reasons for that can vary. Maybe you know it, it actually wasn't working for your competitor, and they were in the process of fixing that. Right. Uh, still, so even if it was working for them, you uh, more than likely, even though your direct competitors have vastly different audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really important to test all of this stuff within the context of your specific audience. Yeah, exactly. Um, to circle back to the personal preference piece yeah. of this, I think that that is a great segue into a second myth. And it's, again, it's not, it's, it's weird to call these things UX myths because mm-hmm. in a way, none of them are myths. They're just like, just don't do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's, um, it's not something that um, is, you, you shouldn't, you just shouldn't believe these things anyway. So uh, maybe that is what a myth is, I don't know. Um, so, but what I'm thinking of is the sentiment that you are not your ideal user for your product. Like you should not make decisions based on your own personal preference. It should always be verified by data yeah. because you are one person 
and your user base is a lot of one person, like a, a ton of them. And if you believe that everybody's unique and special in their own way, then multiply that by like a, a billion, you know? <laughs> and you're now working with these, these types of people that aren't really like you, but still would use your product. So you can't make a lot of decisions um, or really any decisions based on personal preference, except for like the very beginning. Like when you have nothing, you might have to. And it's impossible when you're building something on your own, it's impossible to avoid adding personality into something. Mm -hmm. um, the argument is, could be that when your team grows a lot larger, there's not a lot of personality. Um, but what you actually get is either clashing personalities or you get like an editor at the top level who's applying their personality like to it. Like an art director or creative director. Right, so you get somebody adding some sort of personality somewhere. But usually at that point, you know, because there's a lot of um, hierarchy you have to go through and a lot of process that you have to go through, that personality is like heavily edited to fit the the personas that you guys are trying to, to trying to feed. Let's take this to the extreme. So let's say that you work at Envision and you are a UX UI designer and you're creating the UI for Envision. You can't just say, well, I'm part of the audience of people who would use this thing. It right. should look like this. I'm the expert on that and I fit into this demographic. Because maybe the ideal user for Envision is not the type of UX designer that works at Envision. Right. Yeah. You can't just make that assumption. Right. Yeah, if you're like, so that's like dog fooding, mm -hmm. you know, using your own product. 37 Signals is really famous for this. Envision definitely does it. Um, we do it here. We do it, yeah, we do it here. Um, Intercom's another company I know that does it. And um, a lot of times you fall into the trap of building for the power user when you're dog fooding mm -hmm. because you are a power user. Yes. I mean, you know what the insides look like. Like, you're gonna be able to know every little thing that goes on and you start losing some of this this ability to be lost and frustrated. Um, mm -hmm. When you're dog fooding, you're so familiar with your own product that sometimes it gets difficult to almost put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's brand new. You know, you're gonna neglect some onboarding. You're gonna think that some concepts are a whole lot easier than they actually are. Um, there's this, this, uh, this psychological principle it's called uh the dunning kruger effect i don't know yeah. if you guys have heard yeah, yeah. yeah so like it goes two ways it goes somebody who's not skilled tends to think that they are much more skilled than they actually are so they are they are um it's misattributing. like this bias yes yeah. misattributing something like their own properties but uh, on the other hand if you are very skilled at something you tend to be biased towards thinking that that task is much easier than it actually is for people who aren't skilled. You just go, well, it was easy for me. It's probably not that hard for anybody else either, even if it really is incredibly complicated. Is this similar to the the more you know, the less you think you know concept? That's what I'm getting So, So this is very closely tied to something that we refer to around here as imposter syndrome. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a really interesting blog post that recently came out on the HubSpot product blog. Mm -hmm. um, I can, I'll, I'll put a link to it up on our site and in the description. Um, and basically what it is, is it talks about imposter syndrome within developers, where um, they surveyed a, like, a, a huge amount of developers in HubSpot, outside of HubSpot, all over the place. And they asked them, have you ever experienced imposter syndrome, which is where you feel like you're kind of faking it, mm -hmm. like you're acting like you know something or you've been there when you haven't really been there. And they found a correlation 
between years of experience and likelihood of experiencing imposter syndrome. And what's interesting is that it was backwards than what you would expect, where people that had less experience and are actually more likely to be imposters were less likely to say that they had experienced imposter syndrome. So people with one to three years of experience, only like 10% of them had experienced imposter syndrome. But then they took people with uh, over 10 years of experience, and it was like 95% of them said, yes, I have definitely experienced imposter syndrome. You think about how crazy that is. Like these people have been, they've already gone through, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's yeah. 10,000 hours. They're actually experts at what they do. Uh, and they're experiencing a higher rate of imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I think that, that that really has a lot to do with like the more that you do this, the more you realize you don't know. Right. And you have to verify this stuff with your peers, with your audience. Um, and, and as much of an expert as you may become, there are never any true experts. Right. No, that's absolutely true. There's uh, this, it reminds me of this thing um, that happened to me when, back when I was working at, I think it was my second startup. Mm-hmm. I never started any of these startups. I just worked at them. That's where I got a lot of my experience. Um, that's where I developed like uh, <laughs> ridiculous, uh, like up and down, occasional depression type things. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, oh, like we haven't seen Jeff in six months. What's up? And I'm like coding at every hour of every day, and it's <laughs> terrible. Um, but I remember I was going through. We were doing some whiteboarding. Um, it was myself and two other people, and we were talking about somebody filling out a form in our product. And I brought up uh, an issue where a user could be confused. And I remember right out of the guy's mouth, he said, well, you, you can't fix stupid. Mm. And <laughs> But the whole point mm-hmm. of UX, I think, is no, you're right. You can't fix it, but you can predict it and avoid it yeah. because stupid users are frustrated users who don't pay you and don't use your product. Yeah, You know, just assume that and also by the way that is a myth is mm-hmm. that your users are stupid yeah because they're not none of them are stupid if anything you're stupid for not thinking that you're for assuming that your product is uh usable you know right like right. maybe it's broken and you're like well like these users are so dumb it's like no you're miscommunicating how this should be used. it reminds me of uh, something you said in an earlier episode where you're like Hey, if a user wants to sign up, they're gonna find the sign up button. You right. don't need to have ten sign up buttons on your homepage. Right. The problem is always intention. Mm-hmm. Like almost, I think we're at a point in design where it's not we're not we're not GeoCities anymore. You know, like mm-hmm. the vast majority of the web is usable, mm-hmm. but we are mistaking like well, the mistake that we're making is that. We think that users are not clicking because it's not visible or they can't find it, but in reality, they don't care. They just don't care. You haven't sold it to them. They know where your button is because the web is usable now, you know? Mm-hmm. And the patterns, like when you're copying, when everyone's using Bootstrap and everybody's copying competitors, we all know where the buttons are, mm-hmm. you know? If you have a big banner on the top of your page and you're mobile ready, you, you probably have a very usable layout. Yeah. So it's, your product is wrong. You're, you're you're not getting the right people to yep. look at your stuff. You're 
your product maybe is useless and you should pivot. Like sometimes, you know, that's a big assumption. And if you run those experiments trying to optimize for those things like, oh, what if I make this button a little bit bigger and brighter? Like, let's experiment with that. You're missing the point. Right. Because you just need to pitch this thing in different ways. You know what's poisonous is there are articles out there that talk about, um, like, that that experiment we keep talking about over and over, that Shades of Blue experiment. Mm -hmm. If you read that and then you read um, articles on Moz about, you know, how they optimized their conversions by moving a button into a particular position or something like that what you're doing is you're you're skipping a bunch of assumptions you've already thought to yourself the problem is my page and then you're doing that and you're never going to see any real return from that because you're fixing a problem that isn't the core problem or a problem that doesn't exist at all mm -hmm. know what i'm saying yeah so there's this there's a, a really interesting quote from uh Jono de carlo that i i really like and he says when software is hard to use don't make excuses for it. Improve it. Good design is humble. Right. Uh, and I think that's a pillar of what what we do here is that you have to take a humble approach to your work. Yeah. And when when you say like, oh, you know, th this this is my design. I'm an expert. Um, I've been doing this for you know 15 years. I have this many awards, and also Apple is doing this. <laughs> um, you know, if the user can't understand this, then that's their problem. Right. Um, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of design. You know what? The way that you phrase that reminds me when you say something like, oh, Apple's doing this as though it's like another piece of your argument. That's mm -hmm. like saying like, Caitlyn Jenner retweeted me, so I'm right. <laughs> you know, somebody who's more successful than you doing something that you think is approval doesn't make your argument any stronger. Yeah. It's just something that you can say really loud to people, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's Apple did not specifically like, unless they write back to you and they're like, yeah, yo, you're totally right. You know, <laughs> like that's, it's probably, it's just filler for yeah. your argument. You, so what that they're doing it too. Mm -hmm. doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. yep. Let's a quick example is like, let's look at the fast food industry. McDonald's was the king of fast food for a long time. I think they still are. They probably still are, but like, if everyone was just trying to copy them because what they're doing just works and that's the way you should do things, we wouldn't have new chains like Chipotle that thought, let's do this a little bit differently. Right. Mm -hmm. So what are some other UX myths that we have? Uh, there, first, I'm uh, going to throw this out there. There's a really cool website out there that you guys should check out. It's called uxmyths.com, and it just lists a bunch of these. They're really <laughs> fun to, to go through. We're not just like carving, copying, and reading from this list, but it, it's interesting to, to get you thinking. Um, but also a lot of these have been beaten to a dead horse at this point. Things yeah. like uh, there is no fold and your homepage is your most important website uh, page on your website. Yes. And that you don't need copy to create a mock-up. Um, all these things that like you should already know these things if you're interested in UX. They've been written about so, so many times. But yeah. I think they're still important. And we need to remain mindful of them. Yeah. yeah. There's a couple of myths on here, by the way, that aren't UX. For example, success happens overnight. That's not a that's UX not myth. A UX that's myth. just like a yeah. general myth. Yeah. It's 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 um it's an okay list. Right. Uh, but you're right, Matt. There there are certain things UX myths that we we won't even really cover in this episode, uh, because because they've been so widely discussed and and the consensus uh, in the design community and in the tech community is so strong yeah. on them. Yeah. Um, like the idea that people don't scroll or that you need to design for the fold. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that has been disproven multiple times over and over again, that that is not the case. Um, I think it's really easy, by the way, a lot of these, the reason that it's, it's become common knowledge is because you can demonstrate it. 
<laughs> the ones that are based on psychological problems, bias, for example. Yes. It's so you, it's impossible to just demonstrate that in a way that people are going to go, oh, I can recognize all of my bias now because it's mm -hmm. the same thing as feeling grumpy in the morning when you wake up. Like it's not, it's a part of your brain that is completely illogical. It's just an emotional, irrational piece of your, your body, you know, mm -hmm. and it, that overcoming that is incredibly difficult. To me, that's a challenge that I have every single day, looking at any data ever. Like I'm thinking about things that have nothing to do with what I'm looking at, you know, my own personal whatever. Like if I show this data, like, am I going to get a promotion? Or like if I, if this isn't working the way I want, or like if I, if the data is not showing what I wanted it to show, or I was hoping it would show, you know, what does that mean? And I'm attached to this or I'm not, you know, yeah, like it, these are things your I fault if the data doesn't look good. Jeff. Right. <laughs> well, but, <laughs> totally but that's, not that's a legitimate uh -huh. feeling, especially if you've already given people updates before that data is done being collected, mm -hmm. you know, because then you're, it's like betting. It's like, it's like betting and then telling somebody, actually, I lost all your money. Mm -hmm. That it's, that's real life. Mm -hmm. That's hard to avoid that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and those are the things that just have to be, you just have to be mindful, you know? Um, I think that that is a good place to cut it short. Mm -hmm. yeah. I know we're, we're running up on about 40 minutes right now. So um, if we, we covered only a, a small handful of myths, uh, we, we talked a lot about education and the tech community and how it plays a role or sometimes doesn't play a role. Um, if you have any questions or concerns or anything you wanna tell us, or you have like a funny picture you want to send us, like whatever we have. <laughs> uh, we have an inbox. It's hello at uxandgrowth.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And we're definitely going to be talking more about this stuff. Yep. So uh, on that note, thank you very much for listening and have a great rest of your day.